Aloha. It's Tuesday, February 13th. This is Catherine Cruz. Mahalo for joining us here on The Conversation, Hawaii Talks. And we talk about child welfare in light of recent murder charges against guardians of a foster child who officials say was starved and abused. The city's planning and permitting department scores a win against an Oahu monster home builder. So now what? We talk about free school lunches for all public school students and the impacts it could have socially and economically. Can we afford it? And a local filmmaker talks about her debut novel that centers on on childhood best friends who find themselves walking different paths in life. She calls it a story about platonic divorce. You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The death of a 10-year-old Oahu girl who officials say was abused and starved by her legal guardians has sent shockwaves across the state. Brandy and Thomas Bloss and Deborah Jaron appeared in court this week facing charges of neglect, abuse, and murder. Gianna Bradley died at their Wahewa home last month. Lawmakers are calling for changes in the law after the child fell through the cracks after being homeschooled. Dorothy Roberts is a professor of law and sociology at the University of Pennsylvania. She's a critic of the child welfare system in our country. She'll give a talk uh, later this week on the topic uh, uh, at the University of Hawaii Manoa campus. Her latest book is entitled Torn Apart. We talked with Roberts this morning. When I hear about cases of children who are abused in foster homes, my first question is, why were they taken from their families and couldn't their families have been supported and certainly we know now that the children would have been better off at home so part of what's wrong with the family policing system as i call it is we take children from their homes usually because there are allegations of neglect which means the children's needs aren't being met and instead of supporting those families we put them into a system that we know harms children. And this is just one example of a child who was harmed after the system took her from her home. As far as I could tell from the father who was interviewed, she would have been better off in his care than in the care of these people who abused her. And often the system is quick to remove children, to blame family caregivers for children's unmet needs, but not so quick to supervise what's happening to the children after they're taken from their home. In this case, and a previous case of abuse involving another child in the, in the uh, foster care system, both these little girls were taken out of school uh, to be mm-hmm. homeschooled. And in that case, then, you yeah. know, the checks and balances just, they just fell through the cracks, these girls. Yes, well, that that can happen, too. There was the, the horrible case a few years ago of a couple that adopted five siblings, black siblings, two sets of siblings, actually, and ended up in a murder-suicide where uh, one of the adoptive mothers drove a car off the cliff, killing everybody, and we now know that those children were unnecessarily taken from their families to begin with, that this couple found them online, you know, as if they were being marketed, and then took them away when one of the women, the adoptive mothers, was 
found to have abused one of the children, they put the children in homeschooling and just took them off the radar. But there was no investigation. Even when one of the girls escaped out of a second window, went to a neighbor and reported that they were being abused, nothing was done about it. And they ended up all being killed by this couple. So, you know, th this is not the only case, but just systematically, we have a system that removes children from their homes as the answer to families' needs instead of supporting families. And again, I just have no doubt that this little girl would have been better off left with her family supported by community rather than being taken and put into the care of people who are being paid to care for her, but obviously did not care for her at all. Yeah, very sad, you know, to think that, you know, money is in their hands to care for the child. And yeah. yet, you know, the allegations, you know, in the court case say that she was starved. Yeah. So, you know, the foster system, despite some examples of children who are well cared for in totality, it's a system that harms children. We know that the outcomes for children who are in the foster system are bleak because it, it has torn them away from their families, and it causes emotional trauma, it causes physical harm, it's a gateway to juvenile delinquency and prison, and instead of spending all this money on keeping children outside their families, that money would be better directed to meeting the material needs of families and their children. Yeah, you know, we don't know enough about this particular case, this most recent case here in Hawaii. For whatever reason, the biological parents lost their parental rights. But yeah, yeah your heart just breaks uh, that this child had to suffer o over this long period. But, you know, as you've done your research, what else have you learned uh, about the welfare systems in general across the country? Well, one of the distinctive features of the child welfare system in uh, across the nation is that it targets the most marginalized families for disruption. So everywhere across the nation, black and indigenous children are far more likely to be taken from their homes. They're more likely to spend more time in the foster system, and they're more likely to have their parental rights terminated, the rights of their parents terminated, legally ending their family relationship than white children. And this is part of the history of this system, which we can trace its roots back to slavery and to the, even after emancipation, the removal of tens of thousands of black children from their homes and returning them to former enslavers as part of court orders based on allegations that their parents were neglectful, as well as the military strategy of taking Native children from their homes, beginning during the so-called Indian Wars, but then stretching all the way into the 1970s. And again, today, we still see that Native children are at very high risk of being removed from their homes. So the racial disparities, or I would say the, the racism of the system, is a central feature of the system. Then another aspect I've learned, which is shocking, is the rate of investigations of families. Now, investigations are traumatic incidents. 
because you have state agents, strangers coming into your home, interrogating you and your children, searching every corner of the home, sometimes strip searching children to look for evidence of abuse and prying into all sorts of private areas of your life and often not applying the Fourth Amendment right against unwarranted search searches and seizures. And a recent study found that half of black children in America will be subject to a child welfare investigation by the time they reach age 18. Now, just a huge number of black children who are subjected, and again, Native children are also at high rates of investigations compared to white children in America. So the the kind of surveillance and investigation that's so broad and, and so prevalent is another aspect of this system. It's, it's shocking. It's shocking. Uh, the numbers of children who are removed from their homes, 200,000 children a year, uh, and then perhaps another 200,000 who are forced through so-called voluntary safety plans that parents sign under threat that they'll be taken to court if they don't sign these safety plans, which usually involves some kind of displacement of children from their homes. So just, you know, again, hundreds of thousands of children taken from their families. Another important aspect is many people believe that children are put into the foster system from after being removed from their families because of physical or sexual abuse. But that's a small percentage of children who are in foster care. Most of the children in the foster system are there on grounds of neglect, which is defined very broadly to mean a parent's failure to provide a material need of children like clothing or housing or food or medical care. And unlike the case that we were talking about where obviously these foster parents, these guardians, deliberately starved and beat the little girl. In most cases where children are taken from their families, it's simply because the parents could not afford whatever resource it was. It's deeply entangled with poverty. And so also another important aspect of the system is almost all the children in the foster system are and come from impoverished or low-income families. This is not a system that deals with the problems of wealthy families. They have their own private resources. And so that's another aspect. And then, as I mentioned before, the way in which children in the foster system are in a pipeline to the juvenile delinquency system and the prison system, high rates of children in the foster system end up in juvenile detention or as adults end up in prison. And there's lots of statistics and studies that show that children who are taken from their homes and put in the foster system, by and large, do not fare well. Against there, there are exceptions, but statistically, and, and the experience of children in the foster system shows that they are often traumatized by being in the system, and the system is structured in a way that interferes with their education, their health, both mental health and physical health, their relationships. They're, you know, taken from their families and their friends, sometimes from their siblings and their classmates, from their neighbors, and it's a very disruptive experience for children. 
I just saw an article this morning that talked about a set of twins who were, I think, 90 years old, and they were separated and only reunited again recently. Uh, And it was just sad to think that they had lost that part of themselves for so long. Yeah. I I think we have to think about the disruption that it causes families. You know, we know, I think, instinctively and from our own family bonds that it's harmful to be separated from your family, especially upon force when somebody comes in and tears you away, which is what happens within the, the family policing system. And again, it's well documented, all of the harms to children. And so, you know, I argue that we need to dismantle this system and replace it with an approach that is truly caring and supportive of children and their families. It's not about leaving children without adequate food or without adequate clothing or housing. But if you have a family that's houseless and they need a home, the answer isn't to take their children away from them. The answer is to provide affordable housing for people. And so this, this system, it, 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 it not only harms the children who are taken from their families, but it also it diverts our attention from how we should be supporting families. That was Dorothy Roberts, a critic of the nation's child welfare system, who will be in Honolulu later this week. She will be taking part in the Better Tomorrow speaker series and will give a talk on Friday at 6 p.m. in the University of Hawaii Campus Center Ballroom. Her most recent book is entitled Torn Apart. Look for links on the conversation page of our website after the show. Are you interested in working for one of Hawaii's most dynamic media organizations? HPR is looking to hire a full-time board operator with experience in digital media production and broadcasting. If you're a quick study, possess strong time management skills, have a dynamic on-air presence, and if you enjoy new and interesting workplace challenges, HPR wants to hear from you. Visit hawaiipublicradio.org jobs to learn more. Support for HPR comes from the Kim Coco Fund for Justice of the Iwamoto Family Foundation, partnering with Life of the Land to help protect the island's environment and Community Alliance on Prisons, focusing on Hawaii's quality of justice. The city is calling it a win for neighborhoods that push back against the proliferation of monster homes. The Honolulu Building uh, Board of Appeals on Friday upheld a decision of the Department of Planning and Permitting to revoke the building permit of property owner Christy Zhang Lei. She began snatching up lots and developing homes that raise eyebrows in many neighborhoods. This particular case involved a parcel on Sierra Drive, which the city halted construction. Neighborhood uh, Neighbors complained the development wasn't in compliance with rules meant to curb the proliferation of monster homes. We talked to Donna Puna, Planning and Permitting Director, about the case. It's a big win for the community and for DPP to show that 
we are fully enforcing against Monster Home. So I'm, I'm very happy with the decision. And then refresh my memory. With this particular case, was this a third-party reviewer that uh, let this get through? No, it wasn't. It wasn't a third-party reviewer. It was a normal permit that was processed through DPP. So did the developer just not follow the plans or explain the, the, the situation here? So what happened was we were alerted by, I think, Councilmember Waters and some of his constituents that once the permit was issued, that it looked like the way it was being built was not to, or there were issues with the plans itself. So we took a look and then we noticed that it was provided on the title page, which is usually like the actual numbers, the calculations of floor area, et cetera, did not match the if you actually calculated the floor area as provided in the subsequent pages, the actual drawings. And so there's like a discrepancy there. They're saying on the title page, everything is good. But if you actually calculate the floor area, it, it is beyond what was represented. So it exceeded the number of bathrooms and wet bars? Yes, I believe so. And then the floor area... Once the floor area is above 0.60, then that's when some of these extra requirements for monster homes kick in. So yeah, a lot of excessive things were going on. So there's been two ordinances for monster homes, Ordinance 19.3 and then Ordinance 20.43. And they have a little variations to each, but her plans did not meet the requirements of actually either of those ordinances. Okay, so it was non-compliant and therefore illegal. Have you heard back from the developer? Does Chrissy Lay intend to appeal or, you know, what's, what are the options at this point? Um, I haven't heard anything, but yeah, I think one of the options is she could appeal the building board's decision to circuit court or she could resubmit for a new permit that is in compliance in order to move forward. If you go up to Sierra Drive and you take a look, it doesn't comply. It's basically an illegal structure. It doesn't comply with the Monster Homes Ordinance uh, 2043, which is the latest. So one aspect of that is that the current structure as built is encroaching within the side yard. So the requirement is that there's a minimum side yard and rear yard of 11 feet each. But if you go up there, you can see that the structures are well within those side yards and rear yards. So in order for her to comply, she's going to have to demolish parts of those structures, either to, if she wants to still be above 0.6 FAR, um, she's going to have to shave down or demolish parts of those structures. If she wants to come under 0.6, she would also have to maybe remove part of or maybe a whole dwelling of the three dwellings. So, in any case, it's illegal currently, and she's going to have to demolish parts of it. As far as full demolition as ordered by the city, I think that's something that we'd have to look into because when you require full demolition, you know, that's, I think that's kind of beyond what we understand. That might be kind of, I'm not sure if what the authority, what the authority looks like because we don't want to get too much into a takings. Right. But I know for sure that under the current Monster Homes ordinances, she's not in compliance, so she's going to have to demolish parts of those structures. I, I guess the one case that I recall was when uh, John Wayland, the director of the Land Use Department, you know, which was what it was called back then, uh, I think had ordered the Palolo Temple 
to reduce its height. And, and they did, you know, so that they did take down part of that structure to get into compliance. So I guess it remains to be seen what happens in this particular case. But there are a number of other properties, I believe, that may be up before the Zoning Board of Appeals. Do you know how this might impact those cases, or is it just pretty much going to be case by case? It's pretty much case by case because we've had other properties where we have revoked their permits for similar that they're in violation of the Monster Homes Ordinance, but they've come to us and said, you know, they bought the property with those plans and they had no idea and they had no intention of, you know, having a non-compliant structure and that they wanted to work with or they wanted to at least try to resubmit plans that did conform. So I think in those situations, what that's what we want. We want people to follow the law. And so that's treated differently. Whereas in this case for Sierra Drive, she was issued a notice of violation that she was not compliant. And she went back and she decided to continue to be non-compliant. I mean, it, it's almost just a complete disregard of the law and disrespect of, you know, what the community wants as far as monster homes or not having them in their neighborhood. So I think that's a, it's a very different situation as to some other ones where they were very much willing to comply with the law. Do you have a good handle on the numbers of these structures that, you know, you have ordered to, you know, cease and desist and, and to revoke the permits? So I think in the last 15 months or so, we've revoked 16 permits for violation of the Monster Homes Ordinance. So we're definitely uh, taking this seriously when we have a complaint that someone in the neighborhood thinks that this is not compliant. We go out and we investigate and make a determination and, it, and you know, if they are non-compliant, then we'll issue a notice of violation revoking the permit. And if they're working on the structure, a stop work order. Um, so we are, we're definitely trying to enforce as much as possible. And then do you have a handle on the areas where those uh, homes are? Are they in any particular neighborhood? Are they Kaimuki or uh, where are they spread out? They're in different locations, definitely Kaimuki. uh, I mean, definitely in Chair Waters neighborhood and Council Member DeSantos Tam. But then I've seen some in like Waipahu and uh, even Pearl City. There was one that we revoked there. So I don't. I wouldn't say it's just limited to certain areas. They're, uh, they're all over, or well, hopefully not all over, but they're, they can be in, in any neighborhood. And is there any other common denominator? You know, is it the same architect? Is it the same construction company, same developer? In some cases, I mean, we have looked at that. Um, I think there are certain, uh, I think it's, even an audit that was performed a few years ago by the city auditor that they determined it was maybe uh, uh, several specific developers. Um, so even with the Christie Lay case, and we know that the architect and even Christie Lay and her husband, we, we try to look at all the different developments that they did and see if there were, you know, a con- consistent um, non-compl- um, non-compliance. Yeah, I mean the idea but, is um, the idea is that you want to be able to enforce the law, and if there are scoff laws, that you can uh, hold them accountable. Yes, I mean we we have a duty to be fair and equal and not target anybody. But if definitely if there is 
a pattern by certain people, we will follow and make sure that they don't continue to to misuse the law. That was Donna Puna of the Department of Planning and Permitting. She says there are currently a couple of bills that the city council is considering. Uh, one would increase fines for scoff laws of the uh, monster uh, uh, building uh, uh, laws, and another would make it illegal to do- to lie to inspectors. We did reach developer Christy Lay, who told us she does plan to resubmit uh, the building plans for the uh, Sierra Drive property to comply with the law, even if it means demolishing part of the structures. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. Today we're spotlighting one of Hawaii's athletes who won the state's first world boxing champion crown. He was born in Oluwalumawi, and in his heyday, our power puncher was a natural lefty turned righty. One of the highlights of his amateur career was winning a silver medal after a fight in Boston in 1940. A year later, he made his professional debut on June 1941 in Honolulu, winning by knockout in the second round. His star was on the rise in the boxing circuit, and by 1947, he he traveled to Glasgow, Scotland to challenge world champion Jackie Patterson. But the title fight never happened because Patterson collapsed during the weigh-in. Instead, a non-title fight was arranged with Ireland's Rinty Monaghan, which resulted in a win for our island boy when Monaghan was disqualified in the ninth round. Uh, Three years later, our mystery fighter became world champion. For today's two-part backyard quiz, can you name this contender and the weight class he fought in? Call 808-941-3689 or toll-free 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The worst one to get it right wins a reusable HPR tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing parents and children experiencing homelessness with opportunities to secure housing, including Family Promise of Hawaii. NareetHawaii.com. HBR is hiring for a full time membership manager. Are you experienced in nonprofit fundraising? A public radio superfan? This is the job opportunity for you. Join HBR's growing and passionate team. Apply by March 31st. Learn more at hawaiipublicradio.org slash jobs. Support for HPR comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, celebrating 75 years, offering the global MBA with 21-month, 24-month, and 36-month options. Scheidler.hawaii.edu.
Right now, the federal government subsidizes school lunches in schools across the country, particularly in low-income areas. The national program offering free or reduced school lunch program was started back in 1946. But here in Hawaii, there's a move to change that and go towards something called universal free school meals, free breakfast and lunch for all students. Can we afford it? HBR's Mark Ladau joins us to talk about a bill advancing at the legislature. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Catherine. Yeah, so tell us about this universal uh, free lunch program or free meals program. Yeah, so the idea is um, it's being packaged in a bill going through the state legislature this year. It's House Bill 1775. And it would do exactly uh, what you had uh, said. It would provide free breakfast and lunch to all students in the uh, Department of Education and schools in the Department of Education, so public schools. Um, I don't know if uh, charter schools are, are um, included in there, but um, schools within the Department of Education. And so, yeah, uh, tell us about the, you know, how this bill is progressing. Um, so last week uh, was a hearing um, in the House of Representatives where the bill uh, started, and it passed unanimously on Friday uh from the from the committee so it's going to the uh, uh, committee of finance um and that has yet to be uh planned out yet or it's not scheduled been set yet. yeah um but it's it's moved on it's um progressing forward and it seems like legislators are um pretty excited about moving the bill along and so where did this idea originate um, there are a lot of folks who uh, uh, want the this idea or this uh, universal free school meals to be implemented. There um, are different advocates. There are schools um, and uh, the students themselves. There are a lot of students last week who testified in support of the bill. Um, in this particular bill, there were a group of Castle High School students that um, uh, talked about the uh, the ways it would benefit them and sort of their struggles um, without having meals or struggling to get meals. Um, and uh, uh, one of the folks who on the advocacy side is uh, Jordan Smith with Hawaii, um, Hawaii Appleseed. She authored a report that was released in January titling or going over some of the benefits of uh, the free school meals in places where it it has been implemented um and when i was talking to her she said that you know that included things like better academic scores um and uh lower uh, uh food insecurity for the children um and yeah I, I had a clip of her and she had mentioned she had mentioned some of those benefits States that have implemented universal free school meal programs have seen, you know, on average a 5% decline in their households that are classified as food insecure, especially targeting childhood food insecurity is particularly challenging. And so to see that direct correlation is, is just really amazing. We've also seen right improved academic performance after this uh, implementation of universal free school meals in New York City. Their student test scores improved the equivalent of six weeks of additional schooling. So we know that students who are eating uh, do better in school, you know, point blank than those who are missing meals. 
So how many states offer this uh, free school meal? Program. So currently there are eight states that do so. Um, it's California and Maine were the first ones, but uh, Minnesota, New Mexico, Colorado, Vermont, Michigan, and Massachusetts have joined them. There are also some smaller municipalities, cities, and towns that uh, do so. Um, like Jordan had mentioned, uh, New York City is one of them. Um, she had also talked about one of the uh, benefits is reducing the stigma of uh, not having enough money to buy food. Hawaii is one of the few states that can deny um, students meals if they can't pay. Um, and in HB 1775, that would be prohibited. That's one of its um, uh, provisions in the bill. So they wanna get rid of that too. And uh, uh, Jordan also mentions how that can be a problem, um, the stigma of not having enough uh, money to pay for food. And, you know, there are some schools, though, that uh, uh, here in Hawaii that do offer free, like, lunches or free school meals to all of its students. I, I just was talking to, I think, the principal at Like Like School recently, and, and you know, that was a, a portion of uh, free and reduced, but now all the students there um, are eligible for that. Yeah, there is a uh, federal program called the Community Eligibility Provision Program, um, so that allows schools or a group of schools uh, to provide free meals to all students, even if all of them don't necessarily qualify for free or reduced uh, price um, meals. And uh, and so there are, I believe, about 100 schools in Hawaii that are eligible um, for that. So yeah, there are schools that do provide uh, free meals for all students. So yeah, it's a... a available in some districts um, and can really help out a lot of those uh, lower income families. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I had mentioned too, uh, again, or I had mentioned before that one of the big uh, uh, benefits of that is reducing uh, stigma. There are some students who testified in the hearing about, you know, them being denied meals because they couldn't pay for it and that's you know if you're a student that's really you know it's embarrassing it's there's a lot of shame that goes on with it and jordan smith she had uh she had mentioned that it's in the difficulties of going through that we're thinking about you know a middle schooler an elementary schooler just having to know how much money their parents make you know like that should that be on their mind should they be stressing right about not being able to eat lunch with the rest of their friends. Um, and so just during this very, very formative time, right, being just extra conscious of like the devastating stigma that some of our students, you know, are facing on, on a daily basis. Yeah, it's interesting um, that, uh, you know, they're really making an effort to be sensitive. Yeah. Um, and, I, you know, I think that's the, part of what she had mentioned, too, was that a lot of this is also like a... a a sort of an equity and justice um, issue that all students should have access to meals regardless of um, their income level. Um, and yeah. And then she published that uh, report, you said last month? Yes. Uh, so I think in, I believe it was early, early last month. Um, and so now where we are is uh, uh, the bill's going forward and I believe that there's the majority of folks who testified uh, on the bill are in support of it. Um, 
the Department of Education isn't an outlier. They said they support it as well, but they have their concerns. They say it would be about $32 million to implement. Um, but I was talking to uh, Nate Hicks, who is the senior policy analyst for food equity at, uh, oh, I'm sorry, he's the social impact policy manager for Hawaii Public Health Institute. And he said that even a $30 million price tag um, would be worth it in the end. If their estimate is what it actually costs, we should still definitely do it. Uh, we've seen test score improvements, you're right, academic performance improvements from the students increase 15% when they've been implemented free school meals elsewhere. Uh, and so, you know, 30 something million estimate from the DOE is about one and a half percent of the current DOE budget. And so to get a 15% return on investment compared to just a 1% increasing cost is a 15 to one return. And so it's still overwhelmingly worth it. Yeah, it's interesting. So we'll have to see uh, what lawmakers in the finance department uh, think if uh, we can actually afford uh, this free meal program for everybody. But thanks so much, Mark. Thanks, Catherine. We've been talking with HPR's Mark Liddell. Look for his stories at hawaiipublicradio.org. This week's performance for HPR's Mele Hawaii Performance Series is sold out. Mahalo for your support. This performance will be recorded for a later broadcast. For alerts on live performances at our Atherton studio, sign up for our free email newsletter at hawaiipublicradio.org. Sponsored by Farm Lovers Markets. Support for HPR comes from Monumental, PRX's new podcast series. This week's episode explores the Pearl Harbor National Memorial and the yet-to-be-opened Honu'uli'uli National Historic Site, prx.org monumental. And now it's time for the Backyard Quiz Answer. Earlier we told you about an island son who was crowned with Hawaii's first world boxing title. After his professional debut in Honolulu, he racked up 40 bouts on Oahu before traveling to Scotland in 1947 to challenge world champion Jackie Patterson. Unfortunately, Salvador Dado Marino's first shot at glory didn't happen because Patterson collapsed during the weigh-in. Marino's shot at the title came up three years later when the world flyweight champion, England's Terry Allen, arrived in our islands. On August 1st, 1950, before a crowd of 11,000 jam-packed into the Honolulu Stadium, Marino won by unanimous decision. Allen returned to Honolulu the next year for a rematch, but Marino again won by unanimous decision. But sadly, the Maui native's final fight came just a year later in 1952 when he was defeated by Japan's Yoshio Shirai. Marino ended his career with 57 wins, 14 losses, and 3 draws, with 21 of those wins by knockout. And that was today's quiz. We didn't have a winner. We stumped you on that one. But if you have an idea for a quiz, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. A new novel entitled Significant Others asks the question, what happens when two women are no longer the most important person in the world to one another? 
It's the first book published by Big Island Resident and award-winning filmmaker Zoe Eisenberg. Eisenberg is one of only a handful of women to direct a narrative feature film in Hawaii. She's also the co-founder of the Made in Hawaii Film Festival, which ran from 2018 until 2022. The Conversations Russell Subiono got the chance to talk to her about her first novel. So the easiest way I like to try to describe my book is it's the platonic divorce story. <laughs> so it follows, yeah, it follows two women who are close friends and have been living together for 20 years. They met as college freshmen and they continued living together into their late 30s. And they're now going through a, a pretty big shift in their relationship that ends up causing an unrepairable rift that I'm not trying to give spoilers. But uh, yeah, something happens in their relationship that shifts things and Really, the book is kind of looking at the way that we prioritize romantic relationships over our friendships, although when you invest as deeply in a friendship as you might a, rela- a romantic relationship, it's just as rich and nuanced and complicated. I've seen kind of this relationship around me in family members and in friends, this, this kind of deep friendship. I imagine that whenever writers write fiction, they still kind of base their stories in real experiences. So I'm curious to know how much of the details of your story comes from either your own experiences or observations or experiences that have been shared with you. All of the above. But yeah, it started because I friend really hard. I've been told and I've witnessed and I, I develop really deep friendships and they're really important to me. But sometimes when they end, they are just as devastating as a breakup. And when I first conceptualized the story, I was going through, you know, the end of a friend breakup and just really feeling it hard and, and really kind of confused because I didn't have a model of which to mourn the end of this relationship, which had been so pivotal to me. And it felt so much like a breakup, but it, but it was, you know, a platonic relationship. So then I started thinking like, well, what if this was a, a 20-year relationship instead of, you know, a, a two-year relationship? And what would this look like if this was actually the foundational relationship of my life, the way that we are, you know, traditionally programmed to prioritize romantic relationships? I'm trying to think of whether or not guys kind of go through the same experience. And, and maybe we do. Maybe we just process it differently or maybe we we heal from it differently. When women have these kind of strong bonds and and friendships, and then they they come to an end, how do women process these feelings, and how do they heal from them? Are they ever able to recover? I mean, I can't speak for all women, but i can I can get specific, you know, with myself and i I have noticed a bit of a gender difference between the way women build relationships and the way I'm seeing the men in my life build relationships and and part of it is just our I think our natural intimacy that we build with one another that looks quite a bit different and it can even look very romantic in the way that we might exchange gifts or, you know, tokens of appreciation. We're writing each other, you know, sappy sweet notes that we fully mean where, you know, we're, we can be a lot more um, physically intimate and comfortable with one another and especially in girlhood, you know, and that's very normalized, right? So we're, you know, we've got our like best friends from girlhood and we, my, you know, my best friends from college, we would all end up in, in bed together, you know, just sleeping in the same space together the way that you might with a lover. And that I think is, uh, you know, I haven't heard of men doing the same thing. And I think that that's just unfortunately based on the parameters that, you know, we've been given societal parameters of what is normal and what is healthy in a relationship. 
but I, you know, I don't know. I think two people are two people, whether it's a romantic relationship or a platonic one, we're still dealing with the same margin of human error. We're still dealing with need to build trust and proper communication. So when those things break down, it can look the same way it would in, you know, a romantic configuration. And I feel like when somebody writes their first novel, it's the kind of the culmination of years and sometimes decades of thinking about it and turning it over in their head, maybe writing a handful of first drafts. Can you talk about your experience with this book? When did you first decide that you wanted to write a book? I probably first decided I wanted to write a book in late high school, I would say. I'm an avid reader. But it took me a while to understand that this could be a job that people had. So, you know, that took, as it often does, one really good writing teacher in high school. And then I went to college for creative writing. So I've kind of been on this track for 15, 20 years now. But it is like you say, where it takes a while for things to incubate. It takes a while to grow your craft. And it also just takes a while. You know, it's hard to get something published. I started writing this book in 2018. And I didn't have, you know, representation. I didn't have a literary agent at that time. So it took me a while to to go through drafts, to write something that I felt was complete, and then to try to send it to someone to get you know get them behind me so they could help me champion it and get it published. This novel, it, it seems to kind of come in a, a series of recent women authors who are publishing stories, sometimes very personal stories, about life here in Hawaii. And I think of like Jessica Machado's local Jasmine Iolani mm-hmm. Hakes, Hula, Megan Kakimoto's Every Drop is a Man's Nightmare. What does it mean to you to see this trend and, and to be part of the kind of this movement of these kinds of voices? I mean, I, I'm just so grateful that people, and when I say people, I'm thinking like in publishing and, and you know, traditional gatekeepers, that they understand the importance of these stories, because I think women have always been writing and sharing these stories. We've certainly always been, you know, verbally sharing these stories, but to be able to be in a place where people celebrate them and want to read them, I think that's that's really the thing that I'm excited about. Do you sense a trend, like a shifting trend in publishers or even production companies being more interested in stories being told by women? I think so. I mean, I think the curve is is still gradual, right? But I do see more room for us at the table because, um, you know, there's an audience for this. We all want to read each other's stories. When, I, when I'm writing, I'm pretty much writing for myself. You know, I'm like, would I want to read this story? Does this story already exist? And if I want to read it, I can feel pretty confident that other people will as well. Why do you think it's important for Hawaii's stories to be told? And not, not just Hawaii stories, but for women to be represented and, and telling these stories as well. We're, we're also seeing kind of a, a trend in film and television where Hawaiian stories are starting to be told more frequently. I mean, I think women, people of color, uh, certainly indigenous folks have been saying for a really long time that we are not seeing ourselves represented. We are not getting the opportunities to tell our own stories. We are seeing other people given the opportunities to tell our stories for us. And, I, you know, in Hawaii, specifically through my film work in the last decade, I've, you know, seen time and time again outside production companies coming in to tell, you know, what they believe are Hawaii stories, but the actual people of Hawaii 
we're not seeing ourselves represented in them. So I think that there is a bit of a turning tide, which is excellent, of the industry, whether it's the publishing industry, whether it's the film industry, understanding that the best way to get, you know, true stories, real stories coming from these places is, is to give the microphone to the people that are from here, whether they're, you know, born here, whether they're indigenous uh, folks that have been living here a long time and can, you know, speak to some of the nuances of place. You know, I think that we're more and more making room for that, which is great. I know you're also a filmmaker. You're one of only a handful of women to have directed a narrative feature film in Hawaii. You're also one of the founders of the Made in Hawaii Film Festival. Your Mm -hmm. website says that you're interested in supporting and perpetuating female, queer, and indigenous narratives. And I'm also curious to know how you feel about how these kinds of stories, how does that impact the world? Yeah, I mean, each of those, to tell a female story or a queer story or an indigenous or a female queer indigenous story, you know, it's going to be nuanced. It's going to reach reach different people. But I think that in order to normalize our voices and our experiences, we have to be sharing them. And, you know, growing up as a queer woman, I didn't have a lot of representation of normalized queer relationships. And by that, I mean, you know, in film and television and even books, just relationships that are queer, that are being shown as normal and not shown because they're queer. We're not saying like, oh, this drama is about coming out. Oh, this drama is about dealing with identity. No, these are just people living their lives and they happen to be indigenous and they happen to be queer and they ha- or they happen to be female. It really impacts the way that you see yourself, the way that you see your place in the world. So if I can help do more of that for the generations that are coming up behind me so that they might have an easier time understanding and feeling heard and feeling seen, then that's what I'm going to do. And as a film producer, when I think about, okay, how can I use, you know, the privilege that I have, the resources that I have, the answer is is to make sure that I'm elevating the stories that I want to see more of in the world. Zoe Eisenberg, thanks so much for your time. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks, Russell. I really appreciate it. That was author and filmmaker Zoe Eisenberg talking with HBR's Russell Subiono. Eisenberg's debut novel, Significant Others, was released last week. It's available from HarperCollins Publishers and all major book retailers. Well, that does it for us today. Tomorrow, the push to legalize recreational marijuana. Do you think it's a good idea or a bad idea? Call or talk back line. Record your thoughts on this issue. 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Look for segments of the conversation on our website or wherever you tune in for podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join, in, join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. <laughs>